Well, I'm uh, honored to be able to come and preach the word to you this morning. Um, I've heard a lot about your church um, from a distance, uh, knowing Weston. I've heard the journey your church has been on, and uh, it's been encouraging, to say the least. Um, I didn't actually know you actually had your own uh, uh, building and, and space now, and I'm, I'm glad to see the Lord is blessing you all for your faithfulness. And uh, I just want to encourage you to uh, continue uh, to obey the Lord and continue to uh, honor Him as you have been. I, I know it has been hard. I've also heard stories. Uh, I've been spending uh, the weekend with, with the waxes, and I've heard stories about you as individuals and you as a church. I know you have uh, endured much at times. You've walked through suffering together. And I just want to uh, pray that the Lord would strengthen you and pray that He would bless you and make His face to shine upon you. Um, and this morning, uh, I'm going to begin by reading a portion of our text. So if you would please stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Our text this morning comes from the book of Haggai. We'll be reading from uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 15, reading through the end of the chapter. Haggai chapter 2, verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight, and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the twenty-fourth day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheathiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, would you now take these small loaves and small fish, and would you now bless them and make them to feed the people of God? Would you fill me with your Spirit so that I might teach the people your Word? Would you open our ears and open our eyes and give us humble hearts? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start by just making an observation, um, pretty easy one. We as people love stories. Uh, we love to read stories as children. Uh, you, my, my daughter is a year and a half and she will come and say, book, book, and sit in my lap and want me to read to her. My son loves to hear stories. We're going through the Jungle Book right now. He's, he's enjoying that and I'm calling him Little Frog now, which he does not like. Um, we, we love, we're captivated by story. Think about what you did over the holidays. You got together with family that you hadn't seen in a while. What did you do? You told stories about things you did together in the past. The only thing you remember from the sermon often is what? The illustrations. The stories that are told to make the points. Those are something that we latch on to. That we love. Something about being a human we love. It's because God made us this way. We are a part of a story. We're part of a grand story that's being told right now. We are characters on that stage we listen to characters in the stories. And what characters do we like most? 
We like the characters that are in, in the stories that fit this plot line. Everything was really, really good. And then a dragon came and took the girl away. And then a brave prince had to come and save the girl through great turmoil. And he's not qualified, it seems, at times. But nonetheless, he goes very heroically and saves the girl. Great conflict. Armors burned, of course. Smashed, beaten. Great toil, great sweat. And then what? He gets the girl. He brings her back. Kingdoms restored. The curse is gone. And they live how? Happily ever after. This is the basic story of a fairy tale. This is the basic story of actually the story that God's writing right now. That His Son came and did what? Defeated a dragon that was oppressing His people. And it wasn't easy. But He was qualified supremely to do this. These are the stories we love. And when we stop and think about ourselves in this story, what kind of character do we want to be? We want to be the one that is saving the princess. We want to be the knight. We want to be the one enduring great trial. We look at the Christians who have gone before us in the faith, the fathers and mothers of our faith, even ones from living memory, but also those from times that are not in living memory. And what do we do? We hold these people up. We look at people that have gone through great suffering, through great loss, and we want to be that character because we see the glory that is achieved by their sacrifice and by their pain that can only come this is the only reason we like these stories, is because there is conflict that has to be resolved. What a boring story. A little beautiful girl, most beautiful in all the realm. She has everything she needs. Everything that she gets, she doesn't need, but it's great. She's lavished upon. She's told how beautiful she is. And then she lives happily ever after. That's a terrible story. We want what to happen to that girl? To have a jealous stepmother be jealous of her beauty... And to do what? Send a huntsman to go kill her, but he has compassion upon her. And then she goes and lives with seven short men for a long time and tries to domesticate them through the great trial that that is. Um, and then we see her almost killed by eating a poison out. This is the kind of story that we love because there's this conflict in it. There is suffering in it. That is the story that we want. But when we find ourselves that character and we feel that everybody is watching our story, what do we do? We bewail it. The character we've wanted to be, God has said, I'm going to let you walk in this pain. I'm going to let you walk in this suffering. And we want nothing to do with it. The suffering is too hard. Or it's not like our story panned out the way we thought it would be. We imagined it otherwise. And we become disenchanted with our story. And the labors of our hands cease. We cease to obey the Lord Because our obedience is hard. Enduring through the loss of a loved one, as we have seen brother so-and-so do. I think often of C.S. Lewis and the loss of his wife and the way that he went through that sorrow and that pain. And I look to it and think, I want to suffer like that. But then when pain comes to my doorstep, it's hard. We come to a book this morning that tells a story about a people that are overwhelmed at the difficulty of obedience. They're overwhelmed at the task before them, and they are underwhelmed at the place on the world stage that they currently have. You see, the Jewish people had just spent about 70 years almost, about 50 years at this point, in exile. Their homeland had been destroyed and ravaged, and if you read the book of Lamentations, it is truly terrible, the sufferings that they went through. That they are not a big player and haven't been for some time on the world stage. 
After 50 years in exile, they have been allowed by the greatest and most powerful king in the, at the time to return to their homeland, to rebuild their temple. And not only that, he's given them all the gold that was taken from the temple to rebuild it. Give them all the resources, mission that they need to go rebuild this temple. And they go back to rebuild the temple, and you expect it to get done really quick. But about 20 years later, about 19 years later, the book of Haggai comes to us. And guess what has happened in those 19 or 20 years? They've only laid the foundation of the temple. Now why? They've only laid the foundation of the temple because nations that were surrounding them have been uh, oppressing them. They've been intimidating them. They've written to another king that succeeded the king that allowed them to rebuild the temple. And he's told them to stop. And it's really just a token thing. This, the, the king of Persia, Cyrus, only allowed them to do this because he wants all these other religions that have gods to sacrifice to their gods so that he can appease all the deities that are out there. So it's really like a token thing, like, please go rebuild your temple so that we'll be blessed. It's not as if they're returning back to a prominent place in the world stage. They are a puppet kingdom of no significance. You have your little realm, build your little cute temple, and thank you very much. They're underwhelmed. Not only that, they're experiencing great suffering and great pain at the task ahead of them. So they're weak, intimidated, they're underwhelmed, they lack resources, and they're denied by the most powerful king in the world. So they stop building. The work work proved very hard, more hard than they had expected. And then Haggai comes and brings the word of the Lord to them. And it is not an easy word. But as most of the best things in life, they are difficult. They are worth it. They are worth enduring through it. He brings them a hard word of obedience, how to obey in the midst of a fallen world. So we're going to look today at what Haggai says to the people through, the, through his preaching. And we're going to see what this has to do with us. What does this have to speak for us today? Obeying in the midst of a fallen world, because that is the condition that we live in. We are the characters in the story that are seeking to obey the Lord. And I have heard your stories. I, I've been privy to some of those this weekend. I have heard that you are a people who desire to obey the Lord. But that is difficult at times. That brings suffering at times. That brings pain at times. And what I want us to see today is that the Lord would tell us to bind our weak hands and to strengthen our weak knees and to trust in Him and obey through the pain. So the first thing I want us to look at today is that obedience to the Lord must be our priority. In verse 2 of chapter 1, the text reads, The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This was the argument the people were proposing. It's not time to do this now. And Haggai responds with a rhetorical question from God. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I think the implication stings. You have given yourselves to something of lesser importance with your whole being. And you have denied something of a greater importance, of a greater magnitude. They have prioritized their own security, their own comfort, their own well-being, rather than the Lord and extending His mission in the world. The result of all this, we're going to work for ourselves, we're going to prioritize our needs, was not what they expected. And we do this all the time. We think, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to, I need to get my work done, I need to get all these other things done, and I'm going to put off my responsibilities toward the church, uh, toward the Lord, because I have to take care of myself. And here's what they received from all their labors. And you don't, don't miss it. They are working very hard. They're working very hard. 
You have sown much, the text reads in verse 5, and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. And you drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does not so put to put them into a bag with holes. So he does so to put them in a bag with holes. All their busy efforts to meet their own needs have not had the result they expected. And often for us, when times are difficult, resources are short, we look to our own needs and exclude our responsibilities toward God. We become so consumed with advancing our careers, getting a promotion, that we neglect our responsibilities to the church. We become so consumed with getting our children ahead that we neglect to serve the brothers and sisters around us. We guard our little extra money for various projects and even rainy days and we cannot possibly consider giving to the poor or to see the gospel advanced. We say to ourselves that we plan on doing these things when times get easier, when resources are more plentiful, when we have all that we need and things are less hectic. But I think extreme circumstances withstanding, these are lies from the devil that we tell ourselves. And I think Haggai would have us see that we are to prioritize the Lord's work. And I think saying this on a superficial level, if I was just to get up here and say, our priority needs to be the Lord's work, we would all say amen and yes. It's very easy on a superficial level to assent to that proposition. But when the weightiness of that and the implications of that press down upon us, we retract, we protest. My work is very important, you see. Or if I give, how will I get by? If we collect manna for six days, what will we do on day seven? If you fed 5,000, how in the world are you going to feed 4,000? We place our desires and our needs before obedience to the Lord. And I really want to focus not on our desires. I think we can get that pretty easy. We have these extra desires that we all agree that would be nice if we had. I want to be a little more provocative. Obedience to the Lord takes part over our needs. Our basic needs. I think that is harder for us to understand. We, we hoard like dragons our money. We hoard like dragons our time. We hoard like dragons many of the blessings and gifts that the Lord has given to us. And we become greedy. And we say, it's not time now to rebuild this house. There will be another time, but it's not now. And I think the question that hits us is this. Do we trust the Lord? Do we trust the Lord that He will take care of us? Do we trust the Lord that He will take care of our needs when we give sacrificially? Do we have the attitude of the Macedonians, who though in their impoverishment, they gave? Do we trust that the Lord, just as He clothes all the flowers of the field in such beauty, more splendid than Solomon, will take care of us? Do we believe that? Yet here we go. So busy, we're so pressed, we feel like we're lacking resources. But ironically, what do we find time to do? The things that we want to do. We find time to spend money on the, uh, money on the things that matter. We find time to uh, give it to activities that we enjoy. All the while saying, I'm busy, I'm low on resources, or whatever the case may be. But we find time to spend, to build our houses, nice houses as the Israelites were doing in this text. One way this strikes me often is I find myself busy with work. I've got to prepare for the next week's teaching. Um, 
I've got to get things ready for church as well on Sunday that I have to do responsibilities. And I find myself just so busy that I can't possibly do what? Take time to pray. Take time to read and hear from the Lord. Because I just don't have time, I tell myself. And what's the irony of all this? The very one thing that I need most, I am denying myself. And it's actually a form of pride. Right? God, I don't need you. I have the sufficient resources to do this. Or another one that strikes me when I think of this is that rather than going to the Lord to seek wisdom, I find myself having to present something, whether it be a lesson at school or something at church, wherever it may be, and going to every other resource of wisdom rather than first going and saying, God, would you give me wisdom because I lack it? I am so caught up with all these things that I'm so busy with that I say I don't have time to serve the Lord. I don't have time to obey the Lord, in this case in prayer. Or another one that gets me often is money. God, I, I, I would give. I would love to support this. I just don't have the resources. So I don't. So I'm stingy with my money. But the principle that we see Paul advocating in 2 Corinthians is what? Give and trust the one who gives bread. Trust the one who gives seed to the sower. That he will increase your supply. Why? So you can hoard it? No. So that you can give more. So that you can serve more. Our needs do not take precedence over God. God is giving us everything in Christ. And He's given us more than this. He's promised that He will take care of our needs. That He is a good Father who loves us. So let us be faithful to the Lord and let's make obedience to Him a priority. Knowing that He loves us and that He will take care of us. The second thing um, I would like us to see is that the Lord disciplines His people so they might obey and experience blessing. So the Lord disciplines His people so they might obey and experience blessing. In verse 7 of chapter 1, Haggai says, Consider your ways. And this is repeated several times. Consider your ways. And as we've already seen, the situation is not good. It's dismal. They've been working. They've been laboring diligently for themselves. And they've not harvested and reaped what they thought they would. They barely have enough to get by. They ate, but they were hungry. Their wages did not go as far as they expected. Now, why? Well, it seems to imply in that first part of the text that it's because of their lack of obedience to God that they are now suffering all of these things. But it's stated explicitly in verses 9 through 10 of chapter 1. Read with me in the second half of verse 9. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. He tells them again to consider their ways later. In verse 15, the text we read this morning. Consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10, and it continues on. So what we see here from this text is that their suffering here, in this case, is because of their failure to obey, particularly here rebuilding the temple, the task they had been given and sent back to do, and given every resource they needed to do. They'd failed to do, and they're experiencing all of this suffering because of their sin. In addition to this, God Himself says, I am the one who is extending my disciplining hand on you. The people are preoccupied with serving their own needs, taking care of themselves. 
So what does the Lord do? This is so ironic. What does He do? They are, labor, they are like ants working so hard. And everything that they are doing, He is making vain. He is disappointing everything that they do. They look for 50 measures. There's only 20. They plant a whole field. Maybe half of it yields. So we see the point, I think, very clearly. The Lord is disciplining them for their disobedience. I want to be very, very careful with applying this point. When we look at suffering in the Bible, we see different themes. And this requires wisdom, and it's not something that's very simplistically applied at times. Um, The point here seems clear, though. They are suffering in this case because of their sin. God is disciplining them. But another time in the Bible, the disciples ask Jesus about a man who's invalid. They ask him, why is this man suffering? Because his sins or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Right? He says, why? So that God's glory might be revealed. And another time, a man comes to him, and Jesus heals him. And do you know what he says? Go and sin no more. We get read the book of Job. Job's friends, his wise counselors, come to him and say, You are suffering because you've disobeyed God. And what do we know? Because we've had the veil pulled back, and we've been able to see what's actually going on in the heavenly realms. It's actually because he is what? Obedient that he suffers. So he is not suffering because of his disobedience, but actually the opposite. But then we read in 1 Corinthians. What does Paul tell the Corinthians? Many of them, they've been practicing the Lord's Supper improperly. He says what? This is the reason that some of you have become sick and even died. So we see God's disciplining hands upon His people. And again, clearly our text is focusing upon the former, that God is punishing His people for their disobedience. So I think we need to keep in mind this category um, that sometimes our suffering can be because of our sins. Yes, it's the consequences of our sins, but also at times God Himself is disciplining us. And we'll get to the goal of this in a second. Um, but let's keep this category before us. And what do we do? If my suffering is because of my sin, what do I do? I think first we remember what? That we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And James would have us know what? He would tell us if someone is sinning. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. That God may alleviate your suffering due to your sin if this is the case. So this is not as if God's displeasure forever and ever after rests upon us. But we are called to do what? To repent of our sins. And we have a Savior who is faithful to forgive us our sins. So if you are experiencing God's disciplining hand, what do you do? What does God want you to do? He wants you to repent. That is the goal of it. And that's what we see next. That the goal of discipline is what? Obedience and blessing. So we see from the text in verse 17. He just got done talking about why he struck them, why he brought blight, mildew, and hail, and all the produce of their toil. He says this, Yet you did not turn to me. The goal of this was what? That they would turn to him and be forgiven. 
We must also remember that the Lord is no irritable father or He's no um, Greek deity that is waiting for the slightest provocation to hurl a thunderbolt upon our heads. He does not take pleasure in seeing us suffer as if He sits in heaven and as we suffer, He wrings His hand. No, this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a perfect father. And oftentimes, and I, being a father myself and doing it imperfectly, we have to look above to the perfect archetype, to the perfect father that we have in God. He loves His children. And a good father who loves his children does what? Disciplines his children so that they might be taught and they might be restored to what is good. God disciplines us as his people because he loves us. And he wants us to experience what is good for us. He wants to restore us to what he has said is good. So we see the kindness of the Lord in his disciplining hand. The purpose then of obedience is blessing then. So he, he wants to restore so that we obey, but not, he's not arbitrary. Not just obey. Thank you now that you've done what I've said is good. I'm glad. Now we're all restored because I think sometimes as a teacher, kids feel this way about a teacher. And just to be honest, there's sometimes classroom procedures you have that are totally arbitrary. <laughs> and you just have your kids do them because you, need, um, you may have some minor purpose. And the kids exploit those, by the way. They're very good at seeing those things. And they call you out. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? And it's like, just be quiet. We're doing it. <laughs> um, the Lord is not like that. He's not arbitrary. He created the universe. He made the universe to function a certain way. His moral law flows out of who He is. So when the Lord tells us, for instance, don't lie, it's not as if He was set up in heaven and said, okay, in my world, no lying. Why? I don't know. No, He had a reason. He had a purpose. And we can just sit and think about it. The wisdom of God's commands. Even if sometimes the text doesn't lay them out, we can sit and think about the wisdom of them. Right? If we lie, what's it going to do to our relationships? People won't trust us. We'll be divided from people. We'll be pushed further and further away. And just of one thing. Right? So not lying is not an arbitrary command, but it's actually what's good for us. Right? It's actually what is the way that God made the world. So he's just trying to restore us to do what we ought to do. So I, I kind of envision with my children, here's the circle of what's going to bring you good success. Right? And right now you're outside the circle. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to spank you. I'm going to discipline you. And we're going to talk about it. And I'm going to try to get you back in this circle. Because this is the way that you should go. This is what God has said is good. And I, as a loving father, am trying to get you back to that. So this is exactly what God does to us. He disciplines us to bring us back into obedience. And look in verse 19. So we said that the purpose is obedience. We also said it's blessing. Verse 19, they have begun rebuilding the temple finally, previously in in the book. In verse 19, he says, but from this day on, I will what? Bless you. From this day on, I will bless you. We had seen earlier that people obeyed the voice of the Lord, and they began to rebuild the temple. So the beauty of all this is actually the Lord's discipline in our life is to lead us to obedience and blessing. The Lord wants what is good for us. I think we think this is the prosperity gospel, don't we? If you obey, God's going to give you treasure, uh, good health, all these things. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who when His disciples came to Him, after the rich young ruler who they would have viewed as the pinnacle of God's blessing, he's kind of like an Abrahamic figure in the sense that look at his you know, resources, they're vast, they're great, he's a good man. And what does God or Christ look at him and say? He tells him to sell everything, the man leaves. He looks at his disciples and says what? How hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples are having a moment here. Uh, How can these things be, God? How can this be that this rich man, who you clearly have been blessing, can't get into heaven? Because guess what? Peter's always quick to remind, right? We left everything. We gave it all up to follow you. 
And, and you're saying that there's nothing, no chance? Or it's going to be hard? What does Jesus tell him? He tells him two things. He says, all of you that have left father, mother, brother, sister, etc. will receive in this life and in the age to come more fathers, mothers, brothers, and sisters. So we can say to the missionary in the field that is serving away from their family, we can say what? You have left everything to follow the Lord, to obey the Lord. You've left father, mother, brother, sister. And what does God say? He doesn't say, thank you for your service and uh, good luck. God is going to give the grace and He's going to do what? Provide fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters. Many more times than we could ever imagine. What does He say to us when we give of our resources? He says, dare you to outgive me. Try it. Give. And I'm going to give you more seed. And you give more. And I will bless you. Or He says to the one who is undergoing chronic suffering or pain, I will give you grace to endure that. That suffering and pain may stay, but I will give you the grace to stand in that suffering and to walk through that suffering. So do we trust the Lord? Try Him. Try the Lord. Outgive the Lord. You can't. He's a cattle on a thousand hill. Go through the hardest suffering. He can hold you. He can weaken or strengthen your weak knees. He can hold your drooping head up. So we see the kindness of the Lord, that as He disciplines us, He is seeking to turn us back to obedience and to blessing. The people in Israel thought that the task was too hard. It's not as good as we thought. Let's focus upon ourselves. Let's hoard like dragons. And they became people who had great needs, even though they had all that they thought they needed. The third thing is that the Lord gives grace to obey Him. The Lord gives grace to obey Him. I think all this talk about obedience sounds great, but it's hard. Let's be honest. It's difficult to walk through. We struggle with sins in our lives that seem so deeply embedded that we cannot break them at times. We battle laziness in our spiritual lives. We we struggle to develop good habits. We distract ourselves with trifles and light things. We love to be entertained and to be tuned out. And our suffering causes us to focus on our pain. And then it causes us to turn inward and to become very self-centered. Obedience is hard. And we are weak-willed creatures. And I think we do genuinely want to obey the Lord. So I think we find ourselves many times, and I've sat with many brothers and sisters who have said things like this, and I've said it myself, I want to obey, but I just can't. I keep failing. And Haggai provides an encouraging word. that He tells us that God sends His Spirit to His people to enable them to obey. In verses 4 and 5, he tells the people many times, Be strong. It's like, I wish I could, right? (laughs) Be strong. And if you remember, this is what he told Joshua and the Israelites on the cusp of the promised land as they were going in to fight giants. Further in verse 12, he says, or he tells the leaders, or he tells the leaders and the people they obey. So they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai their prophet. So where now did the strength come from that they didn't previously have? And after we saw them begin to obey the Lord, Haggai tells us, I am with you, declares the Lord. We read later that the Lord stirred up the spirit of the people and their leaders. Why did He do this? So that they could finish the task that He had given them. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. So God did not just leave His people and say, Obey. On your own resources, obey. Do do, do the best you can. He didn't do this. 
But He brought His presence to them. He gave them His Spirit and He stirred them up to obedience. I think this is such a reassuring word. I think a lot of us have a view of the gospel that we need God when we become Christians, when we profess faith. It's like, God, I've got nothing good in myself. I can't do it. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. And we kind of jump through that hoop and it's like, all right, I've got it from here, God. Thank you very much. Thank you for bringing me this far. I'll see to it myself. That's not the gospel. The gospel says, you who have been walking for the Lord 33 years need the Spirit. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as the one who comes and professes faith yesterday. The gospel is a revelation to us of what? Of who we are. It's a humbling message so that we can properly see ourselves as who we are. As weak creatures. Infected deeply with sin and in need of great help. And the gospel says, don't look to yourself. Look to one who is greater. Look to the one who made the heavens and the earth. Look to the one who can speak and it come into existence. Look to the mighty Creator who loves you. So God enables us to obey this uh, with the Spirit. He gives us the Spirit. He gave it to His people in the Old Testament. But in the New Covenant, we have such better promises. In the Old Covenant, not everyone had the Spirit. It was given at times and manifestations to people, uh, to, the, to the leaders. Uh, but not to everyone. M- Moses is looking at Joshua, and Joshua thinks he's jealous, saying, hey, there's a whole bunch of other guys prophesying right now. You mean do anything about it? And he says, no, I wish everybody was doing this. Why? He realizes that we need God. We need His Spirit among us. And what does God do in the New Covenant? He, I mean, this is, this is astonishing. Jesus can look to His disciples and say what? It's better that I go. Why is it better that Jesus leaves His disciples? Because He is sending a helper. He is sending one to fill them. He is going to make His presence dwell in and among them. So that they might obey. In the, in the Old Covenant, the people could not obey. We see this throughout Israel's history. They cannot obey the Lord. They sin. They're put into exile and they come back. And just to be honest, when we're reading these uh, books like Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai. It doesn't seem like everything's good as we thought. We read in Ezekiel. A promise of the new covenant. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And listen to this. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here we go. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God has promised a new and a better covenant in Christ. And He has given us His Spirit to dwell among us. God comes in tabernacles among us in the flesh. Then He leaves and He gives us His Spirit. So when obedience is hard, let's not look to ourselves, but let's look to the Spirit that is dwelling among us. And let us ask God to fill us with His Spirit, to stir up the gifts that He has given us all so that we might obey. But can we rely upon this all the time? Can we rely upon God to be with us? Because we see at times in the Old Testament, because of the sin of the people, His presence departs the temple. We see them cast into exile. So can we depend upon God? The clear answer is yes. But why can we depend upon God? It's because God is faithful to the people of His covenant. In verse 5 we read, of why He is with them. It's it's not because, because you guys are really going to turn it around. You guys are great. Why is He going to be with them? Because of the covenant, in verse 5, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, 
My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Despite all of their unfaithfulness, God has remained faithful to His people. So on our best day, we need Christ. On our worst day, we need Christ. But on our worst day, will God cast us off? Does He look upon us in displeasure? Does He hold us at arm's distance? No. On our best day, we say, all I have is Christ. On our worst day, all I have is Christ. That tenor never changes. All that we have, we can count everything else rubbish, because all we have is Christ. God will not cast you off, even if currently He is disciplining you for sins. He longs for you to repent, to take the first step to repent, and then like the prodigal son's father, He will run to embrace you. So let us obey the Lord, knowing that He is faithful to the covenant. When you think that God's done with me, look to Christ. Look to Christ and obey. And ask God to strengthen you and to fill you. Lastly, we see that obedience requires us to look ahead at what will be. We must look ahead to what will be. That is so that we can obey in the moment now in hope. Our text shows us in two ways. The first thing we see that God will undo all the evil things and bring forth His kingdom. He's going to undo all the lies. He's going to bring forth the truth of His kingdom. One of the components to salvation, we think about salvation, it involves two components. It involves deliverance from an enemy and also deliverance to something else. So when the Israelites are delivered from Egypt, the Egyptians are destroyed, they are punished. But they're not just left there in the wilderness. God is taking them to a place. So we see that salvation is from an enemy and to something else. To safety or or whatever it may be. So Haggai is going to pick up on both components of this in uh, verse 6 of chapter 2. He says, In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so the treasures of all nations shall come in. So we've conquered these nations. What are we going to do? They're going to pay, play, uh, sorry, pay tribute. And the gold and the silver is going to flow to Jerusalem, to my temple. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Later we read of another shaking in verse 21. I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and overflow the throne of kingdoms. Overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. That should call up some imagery from the book of Exodus. And the horse and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Other allusions to the Old Testament. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shethio, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. So the Lord declares that He will shake the heavens And the earth, everything, all of the creator, he will shake. He will destroy the armies of the nations. And what have these armies of the nations been doing to God's people? They've been oppressing them. And he says what? I will take care of them. And not only am I going to take care of them, but I'm going to make them pay tribute. And I'm going to bring the gold and the silver in. And I'm going to make the place in my dwelling glorious. The place that you inhabit glorious. So we have deliverance from an enemy. And two, something greater. But in the New Covenant, once again, we have much better promises. Think of how the story of the Bible ends. We get to the book of Revelation. We see that Christ 
comes in on this beautiful picture where he and I, if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movie, we can all just admit it's not as good as the books, but we'll move on. But a very beautiful scene uh, visually is when uh, Gandalf is up on the uh, mountain and he's standing there. And then the, the riders of Rohan come behind him. And what's happening to the uh, people inside the fort is they are being about to be killed. And they've said, all right, this is it. We're going to keep our self-respect. And like good Norsemen that we are, we're going to ride out and laugh into the face of danger. And we're going to slay while we sing. You know, typical Rohan thing, right? Um, so they go off and they're riding down the bridge. They're going to go spend their lives, right? They're going to go spill their blood. And they look up in the midst of this fight. And what do they see? Gandalf comes up. It's a very beautiful scene visually. And he begins to shine. And then the riders of Rohan slowly come up. And he begins to shine more and more. And all the enemies turn. And, and they're, they're utterly destroyed. Right? It's kind of how the book of Revelation ends, actually. <laughs> Jesus comes back with his large host. And we read in Haggai that he is the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts. And he comes back. And what is he going to do? He is going to shake things He's going to take our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and He is going to cast them into a lake of fire. All of the things that plague us most, all the things that bring us the most sorrow and the most pain in our hearts, God will undo. God is going to undo your sin. And think about it. Think about the ones you love most. They are the most affected by your sins. And don't we weep when we see that we harm our wives or our spouses, our children. God's going to undo every bit of that. God's also going to undo any harms that have been done. There will no longer be enemies. There will be what on all sides? Peace on all sides. Death will be no more. Be no more temptations, no more sin, no more death. But the story doesn't end there. It's not just salvation from something. As God says, I got rid of all that. I'll see you later. What does He promise? It is beautiful. I think these are some of the most beautiful verses or words in all of Scripture. Revelation 21.3 reads this. So the new heavens, uh, new earth is coming down. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. And God Himself will be as their God. So what is our great hope? that one day we will dwell and behold God. We will dwell in His presence. The Bible begins with mankind in God's presence. And very shortly after, it's severed because of sin. And we're always longing for, to get back to something. And how does the Bible end? It says, you're home. This is where you belong. And what can the psalmist in Psalm 27 ask? I, I find this utterly bewildering sometimes. He can say this, one thing I ask of the Lord. Think about it. If you've got one thing to ask, what are you going to ask? He says, one thing I ask of the Lord is to dwell in His temple and, be, and behold the beauty of His face. This is the one request that He has. And this is your heritage. You are sons of the King who will no wise cast you off because of the shed blood of Christ. One day all of your enemies will be defeated. One day you will dwell in peace and in joy forever with God. So what do we do now? We look ahead and we obey. We look ahead when it hurts, when there is great pain in our hearts through obedience. And we realize that we are only in the second or third act in the story. And that the closing scenes never end. And they're some of the most beautiful scenes that we will ever live through. And part of their beauty comes through the very suffering that you're going through now.
And just briefly, we see that the glory ahead is actually greater than the suffering now. I'm going to conclude quickly, but we we remember Paul and all his sufferings that he encountered and went through. How does he walk through these sufferings? He says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the Israelites, uh, they looked and saw the temple. It's not as good. They cried when they finished it, because some of them because of joy, some of them presumably because it's not as great as what we thought. They were disenchanted with it. Is it really worth it? It's the question that they keep asking themselves. What does Paul say? Yes. Sufferings now are not worth comparing to the glory that is to come. So as we seek to obey now, let us keep one eye looking towards heaven. Let us be heavenly-minded people so that we can be of great earthly good.